When I mentioned to one of you that we were having Julie Lithcott Hames come and speak on uh, raising adults, uh, you replied to me, well, that's really good. Perhaps we can actually learn how to become adults ourselves. Um, and I really actually very much appreciated that comment because after reading her book, uh, one of my review pieces was that this was not actually a book so much on parenting as it is a book on humaning. And uh, I think that's very, uh, at least from what I understand of uh, her reviews and her work, um, that's exactly what she is very much a, a part of. And that's a significant paradigm shift um, from the previous parenting books that I've read and maybe some of the parenting books that many of us have been involved in. And uh, the reason why uh, I loved it so much is, A, that I'm always into paradigm shifts, anything that gets my brain thinking about things in a different way. But it's also so appropriate and applicable to every single person, regardless of your family status, if you have children or you don't have children. And um, our vision of raising followers of Jesus, um, there's so much that we can learn from people like Julie and the work and the effort that she's put into asking some deep questions about what does it mean to be human that I just thought there was a a beautiful, perfect uh, connection there. And I hope that this is really just the beginning of conversations that we're all going to have around what does it mean to raise the next generation, Um, something that is really, really critical at this juncture in our history, uh, human history that is, um, very much in line with our mission um, and uh, who we are as a church. Okay, Julie Lithcott-Hames is the New York Times bestselling author of How to Raise an Adult, an anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, which gave rise to one of the top TED Talks of 2016, and now has over 3.6 million views and counting, as well as a sequel, which will be out in 2019. Um, Her second book is the prose poetry memoir, Real American, illustrating her experience with racism and her journey towards self-acceptance. She is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean. She holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA from California College of the Arts. And to many of our Stanford alums, she's still known as Dean Julie. Julie, there, there they are, right there. I looked at her schedule. She has a very demanding schedule. She's taking a red eye tonight, and for the next four days, she's going to be in New York, Atlanta, and Oakland, all within the next four days. But her first stop is Spark Church in Palo Alto, and we're so grateful. Thank you so much for coming. Give it up. Thank you so much, Kevin. That was so sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I did hear some uh, woo-hoos when Kevin mentioned that I was a Stanford dean. So do I have some former students in the room? Yay! Okay, that's so lovely. It's so nice to see y'all. I left Stanford six years ago, and those Dean Julie moments are few and far between, but they certainly warm my heart whenever I hear them. So thank you. Um, I am very grateful to have been invited to be here in my own community at Spark Church. I was delighted to get your invitation, Kevin. Um, it's, it's a humbling honor to get to be invited to join a community that is so clear on its own values, its own reason for existence. Um, to be an outsider invited to join um, is, is indeed an honor. And I've loved being here for the last 45 minutes or so to watch as the, as the church came together, to watch and listen as the music began, and um, to, to observe all of you um, begin to approach this gathering and then to see it get underway. I've truly enjoyed myself so far, um, and I hope I have something useful and meaningful to offer to continue what has already been quite a meaningful evening. Um, I want to be clear that Kevin didn't invite me to be with Spark Church tonight because he feels that any of you are helicopter parents. <laughs> but rather, tonight, we're going to talk about what other parents are having trouble with. 
so that we can all go out into the world and share with them some thoughts about how to be better parents. All right. Um, I am one of those uh, spiritual but not religious people you may have heard about. Um, I was made Presbyterian as a young child. Uh, My parents wanted me baptized, and the Presbyterian church was the only one uh, nearby, so they baptized me Presbyterian. When I was in college, in defiance of my parents' wishes, I became Mormon, and um, I exited that church shortly after telling my parents I had joined it. Um, And... uh, And these days, I would say I'm agnostic. Um, My mother-in-law is an Orthodox Jew, so here I am in a synagogue that has opened its doors to other faiths, which I find incredibly beautiful. So um, it really feels somehow quite meaningful that I'm here with a Star of David podium at Spark Church. Um, With all that is going on, as Kevin alluded to and as the person who prayed at the outset alluded to, there has been much happening in our world this very week. There has been much to be concerned about from the increasing surge of white nationalism to the increasing uh, burning uh, land right here in California, not to mention many other things. We have so much on our minds and so much to make us worry. And it may seem trivial in that context to be focusing tonight on this issue of parenting, but I would suggest that we do best when we focus on things we actually can work on, that we can have some control over. And I've learned over 50 years, the only thing I can be in charge of is myself. And so what I'm trying to offer tonight is, um, to you is, is some thoughts that I have about how we can be better at this task of raising these young people entrusted to our care by God, raising these young people to be healthy, thriving adults. So my job as dean of freshmen at Stanford, which was a role I held from 2002 to 2012, my job was to care about my students. And so when I was in conversation with them, I would say things. When they came to me with questions like, what should I major in, this or that? What should I do this summer, this or that? I thought, it's arrogant to tell another human being what to do with their lives, but let me try to ask them good questions that might open them up further to their own self. So I would say, who are you, kid? What do you know to be true about yourself so far? What are you good at? What do you love? What do you think you might want to make of this one precious life? And my job was to care about them, by, me, by which I mean the young men and women in front of me in my office, not what their parents wanted them to do, not what their entire extended family felt was legitimate, not what their entire ethnic community (laughs) said was the only pursuit worthwhile. My job was to care about them. And over the 10 years in this role, I grew worried. I grew worried about whether my students had ever had the chance to make a choice. Have you made a choice, kid? I wanted to say, have you made a choice about any of this stuff? Have they let you make a choice? Or are you just incredibly good at meeting this incredibly high set of expectations? Is any of this stuff on your childhood resume really your passion? Or is passion just something everyone said you'd better figure out by January 1st of your senior year of high school? Or let's face it, November 1st, because you ought to apply early. And they were so grateful for their parents' involvement in the day-to-day life that they were leading at college, parents wanting to register them for class, parents keeping track of their 
deadlines and being up on every single piece of progress they were making academically. Parents wanting to question the grade the chemistry teacher gave the child. Everything seemed to be being handled by what researchers call the world's longest umbilical cord. (laughs) The smartphone. Too many of my students were so grateful for all of this help and involvement of parents in their lives as college students Parents were showing up doing tasks we in the older generation could handle for ourselves at 18. So I began to worry. I mean, yes, it's wonderful that you're so grateful to have a parent or two kind of walking with you still through life in college. But when are you going to hunger to take charge of yourself in this one precious life? I found myself wondering, worrying about on behalf of my students. And let's face it, what's to become of you? Student, what's to become of all of us at a societal level if you don't hunger to hashtag adult? So I would rail against this. Every chance that I got at a podium at Stanford, I would say things like this to parents. Like at orientation in September, every year I would give a talk that boiled down to three points. This was the first day of orientation. The parents had come to move students in. It was dinner time on move-in day. And the students were having dinner with their dorm mates and roommates. And we corralled all the parents over to the other side of campus into a big gym, Maples Pavilion, for those of you who know it. So it was all the parents and the provost and me. And this is what I would basically say. Number one, trust your son or daughter. They have what it takes to thrive here. They've earned this. Number two, trust us. We're not trying to get away with doing as little as we can here at Stanford. And number three, now please leave. And um, I never actually wagged my fingers at any parents, but I was thinking, come on, folks, this isn't middle school. Go away. The irony was, who in my student population was not? raising this level of concern in my brain and heart, which students were autonomous, self-reliant, had a sense of how to solve a problem, how to cope internally kind of infused in them, students from poor backgrounds, working class backgrounds, students who were the first in their families to go to college, students who in essence weren't accustomed to relying on a parent or two at the end of a phone to drop everything and handle stuff for them. Students who maybe had had a tougher childhood that somehow gave them an extra tray in their toolkit, and now they were in college with a set of strengths their more affluent counterparts lacked. So these were my observations, and this is what I was doing at work. Meanwhile, I'm having kids of my own. I've got Sawyer, who's a 19-year-old college sophomore, a son. I've got a daughter, Avery, a 17-year-old high school senior down the road at Gunn, and um, I knew if I knew anything before I had kids, I knew this. If I ever have kids and live near Palo Alto, I'll want them to get their rightful start in life at Bing. Some of you may know it. It's Stanford's nursery school. It's a laboratory for the psychology faculty. They study infant and early childhood development there. They watch children through these one-way mirrors, give them games that are really experiments. I think they're observing parents too. Anyway, I knew if I knew anything, I want my child to get his rightful start in life at Bing. So I'd had a C-section with Sawyer, and I was in the hospital, Stanford, for five days. I decided to give birth at Stanford because I I thought it couldn't hurt. And um, 
So it's five days later. We've got our infant. My husband's carrying our baby son, Sawyer, and I'm carrying my staple together self to the car. And I strap myself in and Dan straps Sawyer into the five-point harness infant car seat. If you remember, for some of us, it's a longer trip down memory lane. But for some of you, I know it was quite recent. And we get in the car. And Dan eases the car out of the parking lot onto the street, which becomes the bigger street, which becomes Highway 101, because we were living in San Carlos at the time. And it should take us 25 minutes to get to San Carlos, but it takes about 35 minutes because Dan's going so slow because infant on board. And he pulls into our driveway and turns the car off and unbuckles and starts to come around to get Sawyer. And I say, honey, actually, could you just go into the house and to my desk? There's that stack of papers and about two thirds of the way down in the stack is a, is an application, the Bing nursery school. Because I'd had it for two years, but Bing won't let you apply when your kid's only in your mind. So they require a name and a birth date, which we now had. So I said, honey, get the form. Just fill that out, his name and birth date. I had filled out all the rest. And we need to get back in the car and drive back down to Palo Alto to drop this thing off. Because, y'all, he was already five days old. I didn't want to ruin his future by waiting to drop off the form until Monday. So Sawyer got into Bing. Thank you very much. And um, he got in as a two-year-old, and his little sister Avery followed him two years later. And one day when Avery was four, it was my day for pickup. And I had a very busy full-time job at Stanford, but a flex schedule on Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, I went home in the afternoon, was at home with my kids until about dinner time. And then my husband came home and I went back to work and I worked until about 11 p.m. every Wednesday. So it's a Wednesday. I'm late leaving my office. I'm trying not to be the last parent to pick up my kid. I race over to my car in the parking lot. I race the car over to the part of campus that has Bing. I find a parking spot. I slam the door. I'm running up to the glass doors of the nursery school and I'm stopped by the nursery school teacher with her nursery school voice. Julie, how are you? And I'm thinking, I'm stressed out of my mind, but I didn't say that. I said, great, how are you? She said, great. Do you have time to look at what Avery did in nursery school today? And I'm thinking, nope, I don't have any time. I'm late for her, I'm late for him. But I said, sure. So we walked in together, and there's my girl, and I'm not last, yes. And I give her a big hug and a kiss. And together we walk over to the corner, on this round table, the teacher has gathered all of the artwork Avery did that day. She's done um, 12 small can. Now, where's that piece of paper? There we go. She's done 12 small watercolors about this big, watercolor done with a Q-tip. And all of these are arranged on the table. And the first thing I'm thinking is, what am I going to do with all this art? It's Wednesday. If she's this prolific by Friday, we'll be out of wall space in the kitchen. But I didn't say that. The teacher is trying to get me to look at the work because she's telling me that Avery has created some paintings that uh, are evidence of artistic talent. She says, Julie, quite frankly, we don't see this type of artistic maturity in a four-year-old. And I'm smiling, nodding, (laughs) trying to act like I care. (laughs) But inside, I was thinking, yeah, 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 but that's just art. That's not going to get her into Stanford. Well, by now, we had bought a house in the Palo Alto Unified School District. My mother sold her house in Massachusetts that was this big. We sold our San Carlos starter house that was this big for the same amount of equity. We put the two equities from two sales together to buy one truly damaged house in Palo Alto (laughs) that nobody else wanted. 
And my kids were at Juana Briones, and I would go to the back-to-school nights and cram my large body into the small chairs, and at the perfect moment, I would raise my hand, say quite earnestly to the teacher, what do we need to do to be successful in the second grade? And, you know, the curriculum of the second grade was very much on my mind. I want to be sure my kids understand it and are successful at it so that they can get to the right future we have in mind for them. And the play dates, if the kids weren't getting along, I would worry, oh, no, I need to fix it. Maybe I should get on the phone with the mother of this child and we can sort it out amongst ourselves. And I was tying their shoes too long. I mean, Velcroing their shoes too long. My son, my son Sawyer, He began reading books so young as a child. He went from chewing on them to just carrying them around with him at all times. In fact, on those playdates, my son would take a book with him on a playdate because in case the playdate didn't work out, he had the book. You know, he was that kind of kid. I trust a book, if not people. That's my son. He loves science. And he knew that young. And unlike his sister, the artist, science was fine with me. Well, now my kids are eight and 10, and I'm giving that speech to Stanford parents for the seventh year in a row. Remember, trust your kid, trust us, now please leave. And I come home the next night to my home just up the street, and I sit down for dinner with my own family, and we're having chicken. And Sawyer's the 10-year-old, Avery's eight, Sawyer's 10. I sit next to Sawyer, and I lean over his plate, and I start cutting his meat. And some of you are like, so? Those knives are sharp. And some of you are thinking, oh no, I need to get my 11-year-old to start cutting their own meat. (laughs) But that was my aha moment. That's when the freshman dean who was railing against overparenting of 18-year-olds realized, oh no, I'm on track to be one of those parents who won't be able to let go because there are so many skills a human has to learn between cut meat and go to Stanford or join the army. But I thought, where's the book? They don't tell you when to stop cutting meat, when to let them cross the street, when to make them Velcro their own shoes, when to let them talk to strangers. There wasn't much out there by way of guidance. It seemed that historically humans had managed to learn a lot through childhood and just get to become adults. So I began thinking, searching for logic in my own brain, in my own lived experience, and here's what I came up with. We're mortal And we're mammals. As mortals, we know we will die. And unless we have enough financial resources to set up our kid with three helpers who are going to serve them 24-7, 365, we must help our children develop skills and ultimately agency. Like any other mammal parent, our job is to raise our offspring to be able to fend without us. Our job as parents is actually to put ourselves out of a job. We've succeeded when they can fledge the nest or leave the home or whatever the right metaphor is given the animal. All mammals do this. You raise your offspring until they have the skills to fend for themselves. We should never stop loving them and they us. But we need to know that they'll have the skills not only to look after themselves, but maybe to look after us one day. They're supposed to have agency. (laughs) Agency is what it boils down to. And that looks like this. A kid who can say at some point, 18, 21, 25, 29, pick an age when you think adulthood starts. But at some point, I can fend for myself. I can be responsible for myself. I can make choices. I can solve problems. I can stand on my own two feet. I can work well with others. I can cope with setbacks. I can keep going. Well, when we overparent, it seems to work. 
It seems to help our kids. When we overprotect, for example, one of the three types of overparenting, when we overprotect at the playground, we're standing there right next to the rubber rock wall to make sure they don't fall onto the rubber wood chips. <laughs> when we stand right there, we prevent them from getting the bruised knee. Or when we intervene with play dates, we can prevent them from having a hurt feeling. When we overdirect the second type of overparenting, known as the tiger type, not limited to any particular ethnicity, I assure you. When we overdirect, we can chart a path for them and steer them down it. We seem to think law, business, med- medicine, STEM are the only paths that lead to a successful, happy future. If we're that type of parent, we can get them down that path. And if we're the third type of overparent, the excessive handholder or the concierge, we end up bringing them everything they need. Nothing goes forgotten. These are the short-term wins we achieve for our kids when we overparent. Short-term gain, long-term pain. When we overprotect, they emerge from this childhood anxious, afraid, and unskilled. Here's an example. Don't talk to strangers, we tell our kids. Don't talk to strangers. Well, that's not a skill. The skill is how to discern the one creepy stranger from the vast majority of humans who are perfectly fine. <laughs> when we're over-directive, we rob our children of getting to figure out who they are, what they're good at, what they love, what they want to do with this precious life. And they can emerge from an over-directed childhood feeling conditionally loved, loved when they follow the path we have in mind and when they excel at meeting our expectations for their life. And when we're the concierge type, our kids never fail because we're right there to prevent them from failing. So they never learn from their mistakes because we've always handled stuff. There's no ouch lesson. When we bring the forgotten homework, sporting equipment, lunch, coat, the brain doesn't go ouch oh, I'm cold, I'm hungry, ah, I got a zero in my homework, oh, I don't get to play lacrosse today. We've rescued them. So the brain was deprived the chance to learn the lesson, oh no, I don't want to feel that way. I need to remember my own stuff next time they emerge from this childhood lacking resilience, lacking persistence. Someone, in effect, has always persisted for them. There's a metaphor that I like to think of when I think about how we're raising our children and when we're overparenting, how we can come too close instead of giving them the distance they need. Picture a sapling that you've just brought home from the nursery. You're going to plant this little young tree in your yard and you dig a hole and there's the root ball and you put it in the right distance and the right amount of water and dirt. And it comes with a dowel, this little tree comes with a wooden dowel from the nursery. And you're supposed to tie that dowel to the tree with some garbage ties all the way up. And then over the course of this tree's young life, you're supposed to loosen the garbage ties. Every few weeks, maybe there's some horticulturists in the room who'll tell me, is it every few weeks or months, you're supposed to slowly loosen the ties. Why? Because then the tree, as it's growing, as it's getting thicker trunk and taller, it starts to be able to blow a little bit with the breeze. And when the bigger breezes come, because it's blown a little bit with the little breezes, it can withstand the bigger breezes and so on and so forth. Ultimately, you remove that dowel completely because the tree can now survive on its own. If you keep the dowel there forever, the tree is always going to be weak and will not withstand the big storms that come. 
And this is a metaphor I think that's quite apt if we are the type that's overprotective, always has to be right there, or that's always holding our kid's hand. If we're the overdirective type, you will be a doctor, you will be a financier. No one says you will be an art historian. If we're that type, we're treating our kids less like that sapling and more like a bonsai tree. You know the bonsai tree, the lovely little replica of a real tree growing in the wild. It's a lovely art form. But if you think of it as a metaphor for parenting, we've put our child in that pot, Palo Alto, Mountain View, you know, wherever. We've got them in the right community. We've got them in the right school. And we're making sure they have all the right nutrients and whatnot. And then this little tree which we're going to fashion in the image we have of the ideal child. The little tree is a replica of the real tree growing in the wild. We take our, our pruning shears and we clip them here so they'll grow more here. And we clip them here so they'll grow more here. And we clip and prune, clip and prune, clip and prune our child so that then we can say, look what I've done. Look what I've made. Look at my masterpiece. Another metaphor I think that applies to all three, overprotective, fiercely directive, and excessive handholding, is it's like our child is basically a pet, a dog on a leash, right? We're there to protect. They're never far from us because we're holding this leash that, with a collar around their neck. We're there to direct because we're going to decide the direction this walk is happening. And we're they're concierge. We're there to handle whatever comes up as they're on our leash. Something happens, we can just yank them this way, handle this and that. When I think about our children being treated like dogs, another image comes to mind. Greyhound dog racing, which I know we're not supposed to know about or care about, and I don't except for this metaphor. Picture these little greyhound dogs at the starting line of a race that's an oval. This race is their childhoods. It ends at 18 or high school graduation, and they have their little blinders on, so they stay in their lane the lane of our expectations, and they're chasing this little dirty rabbit around the inside of the track, and they're chasing it around the track, and they're running and running and running and running. This is their childhood, right? Elementary school and middle school and high school, and they go and go and go. And meanwhile, we, their parents, are up in the stands betting on this little thing. Look at him go. Look at her run. Isn't she great? Look at my child, right? I want that winning trophy. I want that bumper sticker for the back of my car that says what college my kid ultimately goes to, to impress all the people behind me with how amazing I am. I mean, my kid is right. I'm betting on this child to make me look better. And so the kids run this race and they finish. Ultimately they finish and whether they finish first, yes, high five or second, darn it. Or 10th or halfway through the pack or near the back of the pack. Wherever they finish, this childhood has made them tired. It has made them breathless. It has made them brittle and fragile. And they look back up to us in the stands, look into the first eyes they knew with their own eyes, pleading to know, am I good enough yet? Have I done enough to please you yet? Are you proud of me yet? This is how they feel at a time of life when they should be exhilarated, catching the wind in their wings and heading off toward the next great thing. This is how this childhood has made them feel. Not only do they lack the life skills that they need to thrive out there if we've overparented, not only are they not ready for the workplace if we've overparented, their mental health is compromised. And here's why. We've deprived them of building a sense of self 
There's this concept in psychology called self-efficacy, which is basically the the psychological equivalent of what Descartes said in saying, I think, therefore I am. I'm a rational thinking being, therefore I know I exist. That was Descartes. In psychology, self-efficacy means I do, therefore I am. I act, there's a result. That's how the psyche knows of its own existence. We humans need to see the evidence over time from young that when I act, there's a result. When I do something, there's an outcome. Doesn't matter whether the outcome is amazing or mediocre. We need to see the correlation. I behaved, there was a, I, I acted a certain way, there's an outcome. When we overprotect toward outcomes, when we fiercely direct that the outcomes happen or when we hold their hands too long to get them there, we are interrupting the natural development of self-efficacy and this leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression We are depriving our children of the chance to be healthy. We are depriving our children of the chance to be. B-E, all caps, bold, italics, B. So I wondered why do we do this? Because we love our precious offspring, right? They are precious to us. We don't even understand where this fierce love comes from, but boy, do we feel it. We're motivated by that love. We're motivated by fear. What will happen if I don't handle everything, make every outcome perfect, steer them toward the future I want for them? We're worried if we don't help that they'll just flounder. Love and fear motivate us, but I think these days in communities like ours, there's a third motivator that's incredibly strong and incredibly problematic, and that's our own needy egos. We need that bumper sticker, like I said, for the back of our car to make us feel better about ourselves as parents. We say, oh, we're on the travel soccer team. No, you're not. You're not on the soccer team. You just try running up and down the field a few times and you'll know who's on the soccer team and who's not. Oh, we can't go to that fun art gallery opening or the Warriors game. We can't go, sorry, we have a midterm tomorrow. No, you don't. You don't have a midterm. You've had algebra. It's your kid's turn. But we act as if we must be in the act of living their lives for them every single day in order to get them to the future we need them to have so we can feel better about ourselves. Well, I tried to figure out how to build self-efficacy in my own kids. I'm going to try to tell you a few stories, but I know time is short. Let me tell you this one. How I tried to build self-efficacy and how I started being able to see my kids for who they actually are instead of who I wanted them to be. So back at work, I was advising students and I had a sophomore named Faith come into my office, 20 years old. It's January of her sophomore year. And Faith has come to see me to talk about what to do for the summer. And so I'm sitting down across, she's on the couch, I'm on the chair across the room and we're talking. And I'm getting to know Faith and she says, well, I'm pre-med. And she goes, and I said, what's this? And she said, well, I have to be. And I said, what are you talking about, Faith? Because you know I'm not here to care about what Faith has to be, but what Faith wants to be. So I start to say, hey, that's what? You don't have to be pre-med. She's like, don't go there. She said, my parents expect us all to be doctors. They're doctors, and they expect that of the three of us, and they choose every class. And I'm allowed to propose electives that I might want to take, but they can veto my choices. And I said, all right. Um, well, what did you want to talk to me about? If not that, she says, well, I want to talk about what I'm going to do this summer. You see, my parents want me to go and do a clinical internship that'll look good for my med school apps one day, but I just want to do something a little different this summer, just a little bit 
something I want to do. And I said, well, what would that be? And she said, well, I think I'd like to work with neglected and abused animals. And I said, well, Faith, I'm sure you can do that here in the Bay Area, maybe even back home where you live in the Midwest. What would it take for you to broach that subject with them that maybe this summer, with all due respect, is it possible that you might do what you'd like to do instead of what they have in mind? Her eyes at this point had filled with tears. So I softened my voice, and she was trying so hard not to let the tears spill. And I said, Faith, how are you doing? She said, I have a 4.0. That wasn't what I was asking, Faith. But she was accustomed by this point, sophomore year, highly selective college. She was accustomed to knowing how she was doing as a function of her GPA. I have a 4.0 means I'm great. So I said, Faith, you must be working incredibly hard. Most people don't have a 4.0 here, let alone in the pre-med curriculum. You must feel proud of yourself. And she shrugged her shoulders again, and she said, I just hope as long as I do what they say, maybe they'll go easier on my younger siblings. And in that moment, I thought of Avery, my daughter, who was then about nine. And I realized I might be looking at a grown-up version of Avery. I realized Avery might be in the office of a college advisor one day, or a dean, or someone trying to help her sort out what to major in, what to do for the summer. And they'd ask her good questions, like, what are you good at, kid? What do you love? What do you want to make of this one precious life? And I knew right then that my girl would say, I was good at art, but my parents wouldn't take it seriously. And on that day, I think I became a better parent to my daughter, Avery. My son Sawyer, I'm going to try to tell this story really quickly. 15 years old, sophomore, down the street at Gunn. Always done great in school, always loved school. This is the kid who's now carrying a book, took high school with him, putting a a paperback in the pocket of his cargo shorts, you know, just reading whenever he can, reading for pleasure. That's his jam. He doesn't do any sports or activities. He reads. He does his schoolwork. He's a good kid. He has great friends. He's got five hours of homework as a sophomore, and I'm terrified. How are we going to handle this? You know, five hours, I'm sure five hours were coming junior year because we've all agreed junior year can be horrible, hell, right? But this is only sophomore year and it's the fall of sophomore year. It's October of sophomore year and this homework load is starting to crush the life out of my kid who also has ADD, so things take a little longer. He comes home from school. He barely has time to read for pleasure anymore. He does homework. He has a break for dinner. He does more homework. He's starting to go to bed after midnight just trying to get all this work done and he's getting good grades, And we try to help him sort it out, be better at time management, talk to your teachers. We're sure we can solve this, but we can't, and he can't. And this goes into working on the weekends. Saturday, he's working. A Sunday, he's working not to get ahead, but just to keep his little head above water. And into the second week of this, this goes, and into the second weekend, and into the third week, and into the third weekend, and into the fourth week. And my son is now not bringing a book to breakfast. And he's got red eyes, and he's just holding his head up on his hand as he eats. This kid who's always had this joy about learning, always the kid who raised his hand in class. His teachers would say, why are you why is everyone looking at Sawyer when they ask a hard question? And the kids would say, because Sawyer knows the answer, particularly in science. Sawyer's taking Spanish 3, honors chem, algebra 2, trig, fast lane to get to the right calculus, to get to the intergalactic math in college. <laughs> fancy history, fancy English, two other classes, I can't remember, but you get the point. Like, hardcore, doing well. But I don't recognize my son anymore. If Sawyer's not reading a book 
I don't know who he is. So I'm starting to get very worried. One night, I'm up late with Sawyer. It's close to midnight. He's doing Spanish 3. He'd been leaving it for last. Loved it as a younger student, but now it seems to be really the thing he hates. And I can see that he's not... He's in the kitchen desktop, and so his back is to me. I can see the screen in front of him. I can see he's not even doing the homework. Google Translate is doing it for him. He's putting in the English. It's telling him the Spanish. He's writing it down. My kid is officially cheating. I mean, when I tell students a story, they're like, that's not cheating. I'm like, fine, it's not learning. I'm pretty sure he's not <laughs> learning. You know, he's going through the motions to get the grade for tomorrow, but he's not, you know, figuring out the answer himself. I went to my husband, what are we going to do? It's only fall semester. This is now probably mid-November, right about now in his sophomore year. I said, what are we going to do? It's only fall semester. We still have the rest of fall to care about, all of spring semester to care about, the entirety of junior year to care about, and half of senior year to care about. <laughs> do we need to let him drop a class? And my husband and I knew in letting our son contemplate dropping a class, we might be closing doors on the future we had in mind for him, which might be getting into the college where I worked with other people's kids. But we were concerned enough about Sawyer to need to ask the question. He was in bed by now. It was about 12.30. I went upstairs to his room, knocked on his door. He invited me in. He was still then sleeping in the loft his daddy built for him when he was a little boy, a Harry Potter-themed loft. I climbed the steps. I looked down at Sawyer. I say, sweetheart, how you doing? Dad and I are so impressed. You're working so hard, and you're doing so well, but it looks as if it might be too much. You don't even have time to read anymore, sweetheart. Do you think you might need to drop class? And my kid looks up into the first eyes he ever knew, and he says, can I? Don't y'all want me to do all of this? Don't I have to, Mom? Isn't it what'll make you proud? Well, inside, I was thinking, we bought this house here so you could go to that school, so you could take all those classes and do very, very well and get into the right college and have the future we imagine. But instead, I didn't say that. I buttoned my lip and instead I said, Sawyer, in some theoretical universe, we wanted you to have access to all of this opportunity. But what matters more than any of that is you. And you're struggling. You might even be suffering. Do you think you might need to drop a class? And his eyes brightened a bit at having been seen in his struggle. And he said, Mom, I'll think about it. Well, he came down for breakfast the next day with a book under his arm, which I took as a really good sign. And he said, Mom, I think I might need to drop a class. And I think it might need to be Spanish. And I said, yeah, I thought, I thought the Spanish was, gonna, was part of the problem here, honey. <laughs> Sawyer dropped Spanish, and we got Sawyer back. They're not dogs on a leash. They're children. And this is not a race. It's their life. God gave them this life through us and life is to be lived and it is arrogant to think we know about more about who this kid should be than the kid knows themselves. I invite you to join me. Join me in getting our egos out of parenting so we can love and support them in becoming their best version of themselves instead of the kid we, the kid we wished they would be. My daughter, Avery, is an artist, and I can say this now, full of pride, my painter and drawer and dancer and actress daughter, she's an artist, and I adore who she is, and I'm sorry that for the first nine years of her life, I couldn't see her for who she was. 
Join me in widening our blinders about the right college. It's not about brand name. It's about fit for our kids. The best colleges, so-called, didn't want my son Sawyer because he dropped Spanish or, you know, one of his other flaws, like no activities or sports. He just likes to read and think. Try impressing a college with that these days. But he got into Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which sends more students off to get PhDs than almost any other college. And Reed, when they admitted Sawyer, they sent him a book in the mail. And there's no better way to say, we see you, kid. We get you, and we want you here. Join me in letting them try and fail and try again so they can grow up strong and resilient instead of weak and anxious. Join me in not doing everything for them so they have more and more skills by the time they leave our homes. Join me in caring about their wellness instead of only about their academic progress. Join me in getting a life for yourself so your kid can have one too. (laughs) Join me in this humbling task of raising our children to be healthy, thriving adults. Thank you very much. Thank you.